Welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Sean McKenna. Last month, the Japanese and Australian rugby squads played a series of non test matches here ahead of next year's Rugby World Cup in France. Australia took two wins, Japan took one. But the real action took place in Australia when Prime Minister Fumio Kishida traveled to Perth to meet his counterpart, Anthony Albanese. The two leaders signed what has been called a landmark security pact in the face of what were referred to as regional security threats. This is largely believed to mean China. Later on today's episode, we'll talk to Japan Times staff writer Gabriel Dominguez about China's recent power moves and what they mean for Asia at large. But first, senior editor and reporter Jess Johnson joins us to talk about Japan's role amid growing unease in the region, why the threat of China seems to trump that of North Korea, and where security ties with Australia could be headed. Jess Johnson, welcome back to Deep Dive. Thanks for having me back. On October 22nd, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida and Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese signed the Japan Australia Joint Declaration on Security Cooperation. Can you sum up what this means in a single sentence? A single sentence? I'll try.、Uh, how about this? Japan and Australia are now what they and the media tend to refer to as semi allies. Okay, so it's been reported that. This agreement is kind of an update to a 2007 pact that focused on counterterrorism, transnational crime, and disaster relief. What's new with the 2022 version? You're right, Sean, and all of that is still in there. But this new pact it focuses on more traditional security areas. Okay. The two countries have both pledged closer intelligence sharing, and they've agreed to more joint training and exercises. But I'd say that overall, though, it's a roadmap for the security relationship over the next decade.、Uh-huh. In fact, that's actually the next 10 years is mentioned specifically in the document. So this is a, more of a long term agreement.、Okay. So it demonstrates that the two countries see the need for continuity, regardless of who's i in power. So one of the big focuses of this document is on shared values and respect for the rules based international order. And while it doesn't specifically mention China, It's clear that Beijing is a big concern for the two partners. And this is pretty significant because, and correct me if I'm wrong here, when it comes to security and defense, I've only really heard about Japan partnering up with the United States. I mean, granted, it's Japan's most important relationship, but why aren't Japan and Australia now just reaching out to each other? Well, first of all, Japan has been looking to build stronger partnerships with a number of countries beyond the US. You know, the United States is its sole treaty ally. But Australia is the one with which it has made the most progress of all these, these other partners that it's looking at. Okay. And a lot of this is due to number one, proximity, and number two, shared values and common interests. And though they might not mention it outright, the elephant in the room is an increasingly aggressive China. Right, right. So, with this new declaration, is there now any chance of Japan being invited to join AUKUS?、Uh, that's the trilateral security pact that was signed between Australia, the US, and the UK. Well, without you know, getting into too much detail about what AUKUS is itself,、um, there has been this name kind of JAUKUS. JAUKUS. Yeah, it's been bandied about <laughs> among security analysts. And、uh, you know, it's possible that that could actually become a thing, but there are a few arguments against it. So, Japan already has bilateral security relationships with each of the three AUKUS members. And if Japan were to join, you know, you'd run into security issues. I mean, in terms of secrets and intelligence, Japan just. It doesn't presently have the capacity to deal with this kind of 
framework. Okay. It's, it's kind of lacking in that department. Uh, they're working on improving that though, but maybe the biggest argument against Japan joining AUKUS would be that it would anger China. It already is seen as a counter to Beijing, right? China's even called it an attempt to create a new cold war. Huh. Okay. So speaking of security, Kishida's ruling Liberal Democratic Party has said it wants to double the defense budget to 2% of GDP within five years. You wrote an analysis in the Japan Times, which we'll link to in the show notes, that this increase in spending isn't as dramatic as it sounds. NATO, for example, wants all of its member states to get to 2%, right? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's more something to aspire to. Like only nine of the 30 member states are expected to meet that 2% target for this year. You know, for comparison... The five largest spenders in 2021 for defense budgets were the U.S., China, India, the U.K., and Russia. Hmm. Uh, the U.S. budget was 3.5% of GDP in 2021, and it was 2.8% of GDP in South Korea, for example. Huh. So China was 1.7%, but that's a very rough estimate because there's a lot of transparency issues. They've been criticized for not being transparent with their numbers and it's really, it's sort of unclear exactly how much they spend on defense. Okay, okay. And I guess it's good to know the players here too, right? So Japan's defense minister is Yasukazu Hamada. And during a group interview you were at this summer, he said, and this is translated from Japanese, the international community as a whole has entered the most trying time since the end of the previous war. And the existing order is being seriously challenged we believe that we're entering a new era of crisis. So what struck me about this quote is that Chinese President Xi Jinping said something similar at the recent Communist Party Congress about the world entering like a new period of turbulence and change and China facing quote-unquote dangerous storms. And then in fact, Russian President Vladimir Putin recently said something similar uh, about the world facing the most dangerous decades since World War II. So... I guess my question is, were Hamada's comments meant to warn the Japanese public, or were they just a way to get people on side for this increase in defense spending? Well, I mean, some people might look at it that way. Uh, I'm sure there's a degree of politics involved. Mm. But um, Hamada, you know, he served as defense chief once before. And, you know, while he's part of what's known as the defense tribe of lawmakers within the LDP and, you know, other parties— He's also kind of seen as a pragmatist with a lot of experience on defense issues. So he's not necessarily seen as a hawk. Okay. You know, but with the, the war in Ukraine raging and some people fearing a similar situation erupting in East Asia, something that Kishida himself has repeatedly voiced concern about, Hamada and three other lawmakers actually visited Taiwan and met with President Tsai Ing-wen in July. This was ahead of a trip made by U.S. Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, that was plastered all over front pages everywhere across the world. Mm. Now, I think Hamada is definitely aware of how important the fate of Taiwan is for Japan and how this plays into anticipated changes in Japanese defense policy and spending. However, since World War II, the Japanese public has been largely opposed to building up the military. Is that right? Uh, yes. You know, there's a, there's a strong strain of pacifism in Japan. You know, Japan's pacifist constitution renounces war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat to use force as a means of settling international disputes, for example. That's banned under the Constitution, right? Mm. So basically, since the end of the Second World War, it's had an exclusively defense-oriented policy. Are there any signs the public may be starting to change their views then? Well, according to a poll last month by public broadcaster NHK, 55% said they were in favor of a boost mm. in, in defense spending. 
but there were 29% opposed and 15% didn't know or didn't offer an answer. So there's a divide, but there's been, I would say, just a general trend toward you know, more support for defense spending. It Sometimes, though, I have to add this caveat. Uh-huh. It, it really depends on how the question's phrased. Right, right. If it's a single question alone or if it's combined with other important issues for Japanese citizens, uh-huh. you know, like inflation right now, right. then maybe their answer might be different. Okay, okay. What's causing this change of opinion? I guess I'd say it's due to a confluence of factors, you know. But certainly Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, it's hit the, the Japanese public pretty hard. Something I'm really surprised to see, you know, the reaction from Japan was really, really strong. They were right out in front with the U.S. and and Europe in condemning this. Right. So it's kind of forced them to imagine the possibility of something similar happening between China and Taiwan. And, you know, on top of all of this, Sean, we haven't even touched on North Korea yet. That's right. Last month, a lot of us in Japan woke up to alerts on our phones of a North Korean missile launch. And uh, people in Hokkaido and Aomori Prefecture heard a different sound entirely. I think that's where many listeners' concerns will be focused. Last month, North Korea tested a missile that flew over Japan for the first time in five years. And that's why our notifications went nuts. Mm. But Japan is actually concerned about something else. Remember earlier I mentioned that visit by Pelosi to Taiwan? Yes, I do. It was meant to be a show of solidarity for Taiwan, right? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, China responded with large-scale military drills around the island. Drills that included firing missiles over Taiwan, some of which landed in waters near Okinawa's Nansei Islands for the first time. So analysts believe that these launches were a warning to Japan, you know, that if it were to get involved in a conflict over Taiwan, China could easily hit U.S. bases and Japanese military sites. And that is what has the Japanese government alarmed. Hmm. So, you know, while North Korea's nuclear and missile programs are definitely a concern— If China were to move on Taiwan, it could jeopardize key shipping lanes that supply Japan with nearly all of its oil and materials it uses for manufacturing. So there's, you know, there's an economic dimension here. It would also give the Chinese Navy unfettered access to the Western Pacific. So you can see why some lawmakers, including late Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, have said that an emergency for Taiwan, it's also an emergency for Japan. Okay. And that's one of the reasons why Japan is starting to get closer to Australia. Got it. Jess, thanks again for coming back to Deep Dive. Thanks for having me. Distinguished delegates, the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China now officially begins. You are listening to the opening of last month's 20th Communist Party Congress, where President Xi Jinping was granted a third term as China's leader. So, are we dealing with a more aggressive China? What are Taiwan's plans to defend itself? These are some of the topics we'll go over with Japan Times staff writer Gabriel Dominguez. Gabriel, welcome to Deep Dive. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. One of the things that was widely covered from the Congress was that Xi stacked his top leadership with loyalists. In an analysis you wrote for the Japan Times, you also pointed out that it wasn't just the Politburo that got a reshuffle. 
Yes, that's right, Sean. So we also have the Central Military Commission, or the CMC, which was reorganized and stacked with uh, Xi Jinping uh, loyalists. Okay, first off, can you explain what the CMC is? Well, the CMC is like China's highest military command and administrative authority. So it's in charge of the People's Liberation Army, which is, as you may well know, the world's largest military force. Okay. So the CMC is composed of seven members, uh, one of whom is the country's president and the CCP general secretary, which is in this case Xi Jinping himself. Okay. And the other members, uh, most of whom are military officials, and uh, yeah, it's uh, basically a seven-member uh, commission. Okay, so how did the reshuffle work then? What's new? Well, in a few words, I think the PLA is becoming more red, more capable, but also more focused on Taiwan. Okay. With more red, I mean that President Xi has managed to appoint loyalists to both the Politburo, which is the country's highest governing body, as well as to the CMC. By doing so, he has removed any potential rivals. She has surrounded himself in the CMC with competent generals, but at the same time also with personal acquaintances. And this has led to criticism that he has tightened his grip on the PLA, from which he demands more and more political loyalty. Mm. So at the same time, she has been trying for years to modernize the military, particularly given China's growing international interests and ongoing territorial disputes. I personally believe that the PLA's modernization is also important for Xi because Beijing feels it is operating in an increasingly threatening external security environment, an environment that, at least according to the Chinese, is more and more shaped by geopolitical and geoeconomic competition with the United States. Okay, so who exactly are these generals then? Well, two appointments here are of particular importance. They're related to the CMC's first and second rank vice chairman. These are generals Zhang Yuxia and He Weidong. Hmm. For instance, the 72-year-old Yang is by far the oldest member of the Politburo, well beyond the informal retirement age of 68. Nevertheless, he managed to get into the CMC because she wanted him there. At the same time, he's one of the few remaining PLA officers with experience in China's 1979 border war with Vietnam, which was the last major conflict that Beijing was involved with. Okay. As for He, he previously oversaw the PLA's Eastern Theater Command, which is responsible for military operations involving Taiwan. This shows that she has chosen people with combat experience. At the same time, it signals that he's willing to increase readiness for a potential military operation across the straits. Okay. So in his address to the party Congress, Xi mentioned that China must be prepared for, and this is a quote, strong waters, high waves, and dangerous storms. What did he mean by that? Was he referring to Taiwan? Well, it's difficult to look into Xi's head, but... I think it's important to look at his statements through the current economic and geopolitical challenges facing China. Hmm. The country's not only dealing with growing competition from the United States and its allies, but also with an economic slowdown. The economy is struggling for a number of reasons, including Beijing's COVID-0 policies, which are quite controversial, a weak housing market, supply chain disruptions. And on top of that, China is involved in a trade war with the United States. And now we'll also have to face U.S.-imposed export controls on high tech. These are likely to severely impact China's ability to acquire and produce 
high-end semiconductors, which are key for China's rise as a technological powerhouse. Mm. So in other words, I think the beginning of Xi's third term comes at a time of growing uncertainty for the country, both internally and externally. So I think, in other words, Xi is preparing the Chinese people for potentially rough times ahead. Okay, so then where does Taiwan come into this? So one of the biggest challenges on the horizon is, of course, the issue over the status of Taiwan. Hmm. In his reports to the Chinese Communist Party Congress, President Xi reiterated that China would never renounce the use of force in resolving the quote-unquote Taiwan question. That said, it's clear that Beijing would also prefer a peaceful solution to the crisis. But a peaceful unification is something that Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen has unequivocally said it's not going to happen. What's the general consensus on a possible invasion of Taiwan? I've seen reports saying it's expected sometime during this decade, even by 2027 when China's set to have its next party congress. And that's a great question. I think things would be much clearer if we knew the answer to this. Mm. But the fact of the matter remains that China has not really given us any direct clues, except for the fact that they're not ruling out taking Taiwan by force and are preparing for a potential invasion, as, as you can see and the military exercises conducted around the island. Mm -hmm. Some Western analysts and high-ranking officials, including the chief of the U.S. Navy, have warned that a Taiwan invasion should not be ruled out before the end of Xi's third term in 2027. Mm -hmm. They believe Xi would need to deliver visible progress on unification with Taiwan should he want to run for a fourth term. So Xi has also reportedly ordered the PLA to be capable of taking the island by force by 2027. So these are all aspects that play around the date 2027. However, and this is important to note here, mm -hmm. there are many unknowns here, and the capability does not mean that the Communist Party intends to attack Taiwan in the near future, especially given the more pressing priorities facing the country and the potentially devastating consequences of a failure in trying to invade Taiwan. What did the China pundits say about this? Well, a majority of China experts interviewed in a recent survey conducted by uh, CSIS believe that Beijing would prefer to gain control of Taiwan through non-military means, mm. meaning not through war. The reason for this is that a conflict would be detrimental, would be harmful to a host of uh, Beijing's initiatives, including economic growth, bolstering regional and global influence, and so on and so forth. So the big question, in my view, is how patient will Beijing be and how will it manage what it views as growing external security challenges, particularly around Taiwan? Hmm. I think another important point is that it's not clear whether the PLA is even currently capable of successfully mounting such an invasion. The PLA is well aware of its shortcomings, and that it continues to face challenges in areas such as logistics, training, military doctrine, and especially the integration of unmanned capabilities. This has led some to argue that Beijing knows it does not possess the personnel or transport equipment to launch an invasion in the near to midterm. I have personally spoken to several experts on this subject, and so far, they haven't found any definite proof that Beijing is preparing to launch an attack on Taiwan anytime soon. Okay. Of course, that could change. But as I explained in one of my recent articles, such invasion would be massive. It would be a massive undertaking that would unlikely take anyone by surprise. Right.
So what steps is Taiwan taking to defend itself against China? Well, I think Taipei is aware that the balance of military power across the Taiwan Strait has shifted, and it has shifted in favor of China. Mm -hmm. That is very clear. At the same time, this is important because Taipei understands that it should not engage in a traditional war of attrition against a much larger and much more capable PLA. Okay. So Taipei has been following a multi-pronged approach that is ultimately aimed at making China pay a high price for trying to invade. One of the key elements of this is trying to deepen international partnerships, for instance, with the United States, which keeps selling billions of dollars worth of weapons and military assets to Taipei. Mm. At the same time, Taiwan knows that it must first and foremost, rely on its own forces and capabilities to defend the island. As a result, President Tsai's administration has been pushing to strengthen uh, Taiwan's domestic defense industry and make the island more self-reliant. This includes Taiwan developing and building its own weapons, its own platforms. That includes anything from submarines to combat aircraft, warships, drones, air defense systems, while at the same time improving training and military readiness. A key aspect has been Taipei's focus on using geography to its advantage and reinforcing the capabilities it would need to either deter, stop, or slow down a Chinese invasion. We're talking here not only about conventional, but also so-called asymmetric capabilities. Okay, what does asymmetric capabilities mean? Uh, for instance, one well-placed mine or missile can take down or disable a multi-million dollar warship. Oh, okay. So the idea is to field, to provide, to have lethal but relatively low-cost weapons in your arsenal that would be difficult for China to both target and counter. So these include large inventories of, say, precision-guided munitions, fast attack craft, small missile assault boats, uh, sea mines, or even fast uh, mine-laying ships. Mm. Important here is basically what President Tsai said. The strategy is to make any invasion attempt, quote-unquote, something that is going to be very costly for China. She is pledged to turn China's PLA into a world-class military. What does he mean by that? Well, so this is one of the three steps that she has set to uh, modernize the PLA. I mean, this is a, a military that wants to benchmark itself against that of the U.S., the world's most powerful military at the moment. In other words, she wants to create a more powerful, more modern military that represents China's new role and position on the world stage. Okay, currently it has the biggest standing army, right? That's correct, but it's not the most powerful one. It gotcha. just has okay. the largest number of personnel. Right. So the first milestone uh, set by Xi Jinping is for 2027 to mark the century of the PLA's founding. The other milestone is set for 2035. And the final one, which is what you ask about, is about the transformation of the PLA into a world-class force. That is set for 2049. Mm. So the PLA is currently at the stage where it's promoting joint operations between its services so that it can fight as one force. It is also increasingly trying to mechanize and computerize all of its units. So that's the process now where the PLA is at. At the same time, the force is planning for the next stage of its modernization, which it has termed intelligentized warfare. This will incorporate the militarization of so-called fourth industrial revolution technologies. And this encompasses artificial intelligence, big data, 
man-machine interfacing, autonomous on-manned systems, and 5G networking. However, it is unclear when this final phase will be completed, because that will depend on how fast China can rise as a technological power, something which, as we already know, the U.S. is actively trying to constrain. And this is very important for China, given that without that technological prowess, it cannot really modernize its military and take it where China wants to be in 2050. Are there any other nations that are kind of further along this track than China is? I'm imagining that the United States might be, but is this a kind of common goal for most militaries in the world? All militaries want to modernize. It's always a question about money and capabilities. So Japan is modernizing, Germany is modernizing, the UK is modernizing, and the US is continuously modernizing. But it's just a matter of these are sensitive technologies Mm. that you don't want to share with other countries, except perhaps for very close allies, which is why a lot of these technologies are seen as national security issues. Right. China understands that, the U.S. understands that, and because of that, the U.S. doesn't want China to profit from U.S. advances in technology such as semiconductors. So this is very, very important. If you have the technology, you have a huge edge in your military, and that's very important here. All militaries understand that. Does China stand alone in all this? I I think we talk a lot about kind of different, like, kind of partnerships that militaries have, you know, things like NATO or AUKUS. Does China have any close allies? China does not have a security alliance with any other country. China recently said that it would cooperate with Russia to some extent militarily. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese military conducts military exercises with other countries, just like you know, Singapore will do or Malaysia will do or other countries. But that does not mean that there is any sort of alliance treaty, just like the U.S. and Japan have. Uh China does not have that sort of uh, alliance. And I don't think it will have that anytime soon. I think China is very keen on its independence. It stands pretty much alone when it comes to military alliances and how far it would go to support other countries if attacked. Right. But no, it does not have any sort of like close uh, alliances and networks of alliances that the Americans have. Well, Gabriel Dominguez, thanks for coming on Deep Dive. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Jess and Gabriel for coming on this week's show. We'll put links to their stories in the show notes, so be sure to check those out. Also in the Japan Times this week, the government of Fumio Kishida is trying to pass a new bill that would provide relief to people who have been financially exploited by religious groups. The move comes in the wake of this summer's shooting of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, whose ties to the Unification Church were cited as the motive behind his killing. The alleged shooter, Tetsuya Yamagami, reportedly told police that his mother gave away 100 million yen to the church, leaving his family bankrupt. Elsewhere, staff writer Elizabeth Beattie looked into claims that the layoffs that took place at Twitter Japan may have breached Japanese labor laws. The layoffs came after billionaire Elon Musk took over the social media outlet and cited the need to save money in a recent tweet. You can find more coverage on all these issues on our website at japantimes.co.jp. Production for today's episode came courtesy of Dave Cortez. Our theme music is by 4L, and our outgoing track, the one you're listening to in the background now, is by Oscar Boyd. Until next week, Potsukare-sama.